0: All right, well, I am in Melbourne, Australia today. I'm joined by Andrew Satterley. G'day, Mark, how are you? Thank you
1: for coming on the podcast. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it.
0: So I've actually known you for a while, yes. and I actually worked for you at one point as well, so, um, <laughs> um, but I wanna give you a rap sheet first. So you've, you've accomplished quite a lot in your career. So at one point you were the General Manager Asia Pacific for Crown Equipment in the Rental Division, uh, you're the general manager of sales and marketing at Lindy Material Handling. You're the vice president and managing director at Asia Pacific at JOG, and you're also the CEO at Adapt Lift Heister and Baseplan Software. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty incredible wrap sheet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. Yeah, it's been a it's been an amazing ride, and uh, and I've learned so much along the way, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it.
0: So, so I want to get into your book, which we'll talk about in a second. Sure, uh, but. With that rap sheet, I'm very interested to understand like how you got into the industry and got into those roles. So maybe you want to go back to the crown days and say how you first joined the industry.
1: Yeah, sure. So I um, actually, this, the crown story is quite funny because uh, I was looking for work in the, the mid eighties uh, and the crown job came up and I applied for it. Um, but I actually thought, oh, no, it's not really for me. This is not what I want to do. Um, but I took it anyway because I didn't, <laughs> uh, at the time, didn't have another option. And uh, and it took me a while to get into it. But once I got into it, it was just like, wow, this is, this is something I want to do. And it was in a rental role.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and in, in those days at Crown, uh, rentals was basically set up just to support sales. So if sales had won a deal and couldn't supply immediately, we would supply machines out of the rental fleet. Uh, but then it grew um, as we saw opportunities to say, well, why would people buy when they can rent? And mm. we tried to turn the thinking around and, uh, and we built quite a big business over, um, over a few years.
0: So, so talk to me about the reason why you didn't
1: think you wanted to join the business and then what changed your mind? Okay, so I had I had no background in equipment. Um, I didn't know one end of a forklift for another, although I could sing the Crown jingle like most people at the time. Um, and so I just thought, oh, I don't know if this is really for me. Um, but, uh, you know, again, Crown were industry-leading in their training. I mean, we weren't allowed to go and speak to a customer until we knew all the specs of the machines, and they would they would walk past us and ask us questions. And if we didn't know the answer, then we weren't ready to go and speak to customers. It was... So the training was really extensive and really good. And so by the time you actually went and saw a customer, you felt um, empowered to be able to, to mm. have that conversation. Um, but I was still unsure. And it was only that when it started succeeding, I suppose, you know, you go out there and win a few deals and things start to tick over and you think, okay, well, this isn't so bad. Mm. Um, and it was uh, just on a byline too. In those days, we were paid, our weekly pay was cash. So when you got the commissions, you got this big wad of cash, you sort of felt like a king for a day. So um, that was quite motivating as well.
0: Uh, And I think you said some funny stories where you would get spot checked for like, you had your tape measure
1: and all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, crown was, um, you know, it was uh, business shirts and, and your ties done properly. But yeah, we had, everybody was given a briefcase and it would come with brochures um and there'd be oh, trying to remember, a calculator all those sorts of things and you had a tape measure which you had to wear on your hip and if you walk past the manager and your tape measure wasn't on you they would literally stop you and say where's your tape measure and if you couldn't give them a good answer well it was a bad day for you <laughs> <laughs> this is again imagine the times there was no yeah. such thing as three warnings and everybody wanted to work for crown so mm. there was a two or three more guys waiting outside if you weren't successful so they were fairly ruthless yeah. um in those days, anyway, so so then you joined the business, got into rental, and that was sort of like the ugly cousin in that business, yeah, was it? Yeah, it was. As I said, it was really only that division was really only started to support sales. Um, but the, the the sales team within our rental division, we all saw the opportunity. Well, why can't we go out and offer it as a, a viable alternative to buying? Um, so we started to build our own collateral about um, you know, why people should rent and not buy. And we started to build from there and, um, and (laughs) it caused a lot of friction with the sales guys, but we, we became quite successful and, and it wasn't, um, just the one offs, you know, we won deals like, um, uh, well, Cliff Chadwick, he won the deal with Kraft Foods and, um, I won the deal with Adidas. So we were winning big contracts away from the sales division because those customers, had so many peaks and troughs in the year that they liked the fact that they could increase or reduce their fleet as mm-hmm. they needed to without having to. Well, I've bought it now. I've got to sell it or I've got to park it up. Um, so we we just changed the thinking and we marketed it ourselves and and grew it from there. But um, it was it was it was an amazing ride yeah. to take it from those early uh, days. A little bit of internal competition, I assume. Oh yeah, 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 the, yeah. Because again, the sales guys were were. I suppose, brought up to believe that we were the poor cousin. And then when we started to, to have our wins and started to build a real business, then um, uh, it became a lot more competitive. And, uh, and there were um, a few verbals around, you know, when we were quoting on the same deal and they were trying to win a sale and we were trying to win a rental. But uh, the rental business became massive for Crown and, um, and the most profitable part of their business for many. It may still be, but it was for many decades. And so
0: talk me through how you eventually ended up in a leadership role.
1: Yeah so one of the things that I um uh, I enjoyed the sales I really did but I I had a I spent a lot of time with my manager saying well why does that happen in the system and how do we do that I just wanted to know about how things operated so that I wasn't just at the front end and giving my deals to Um, the um, rental coordinators to do. I wanted to know, well, I want to be able to raise my own hire agreements. I want to know how to look at the service jobs. I want to know, and so he, and credit to him, he spent the time showing me how the system worked, every aspect of it. So I started to build that knowledge with my sales background. Um, So I, and I would spend a lot of time with the service department because they were the ones getting my machines ready. So I built those relationships. And then over time, I just, I got that first break based on a broader uh, width of knowledge than I would have had if I was, I'll not say just a salesman, but if, if selling was all I was doing. So I got my first opportunity um, as a state manager in Queensland, actually, for the rental division. And uh, it just grew from there. You know, we uh, we did things a little bit differently. We wrote business plans when that wasn't the norm. Um, and uh, yeah, it sort of, it, it threw me on the spotlight and I got pushed up the ladder um, hopefully based on success mm. yeah. so so the advice out to young people is really just to be curious yeah yeah I, I i would think so i mean curiosity and and wanting to uh just wanting to ask the question why i mean we we we, you know, we think about our kids you know and they run around and they're always asking questions why why and if you tell them you know why daddy why is it like that and Maybe not to that extent, but a similar sort of thing. You know, I wanted to know, and I would always advise, just find out why it all works the way it does. Is it the best way? You know, could it be done better? Just get your own um, mental juices flowing and then um, you'll be surprised how far that can take you.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because like a lot of processes have just been the same way for a long time. And so when someone's asked why... It's like oh it's always been like that yeah and so it's interesting like sometimes like when that new person comes along they have a different perspective even yes and they can just provide like a different idea
1: yeah and a, a clean set of eyes is always a good thing but it, you know and you're 100% right and uh, I talk about it a lot that um, just because it's been done a certain way doesn't mean it's the best way and especially you look at our world today I mean it's nothing like the world of even five years ago let alone 30 when I was at crown mm. um, so The way we do it today might not be suitable in 12 months, in two years, so I think it's important for any person, um, business leaders especially, but for anybody uh, to just just not challenge authority but just ask why. Yeah, and then so obviously I read off your your rap sheet, some
0: amazing roles that you went through. Uh, In terms of the, the leadership and the learning. Like how did you sort of gain that knowledge and sort of move up the ranks? Like, what do you think was the
1: like the, the moment that you sort of, you noticed like, all right, I'm on a trajectory here? Yeah, I probably, um, so when I moved from uh, the Queensland State role, I went to head office in Sydney. That's when, uh, this was at Crown, that's when I thought, okay, I've got, I'm on something here. Then um, there's an opportunity but it was still just an opportunity I mean it's not given to you you have to work really hard and and uh, worked very hard over those years um, but again I I think where I, I became confident to to go outside the norm um, as I said we we wrote a business plan uh, to support and build the budget rather than just spending three months building a budget and then trying to figure out how we were going to achieve it so we changed the way we were doing things and It put me in the spotlight, and um, and I was able to be successful from there. So uh, that was. But yeah, moving to head office was probably when I thought, okay, I've got the opportunity now. I've got to make the most Mm. of it. And talking to business plans, so
0: you actually wrote a book as well. So you're an author. So, <laughs> yes, I am. So we've got uh, yeah, Sats's first. Well, sorry, Sats is what I call him, Andrew <laughs> Uh So redefine, reimagine, recreate. So we'll put the link uh, in the in the description as well. So this is your first book, yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, my first. There's a second one on the way. Yeah.
0: Oh, really? Yes. Oh. very nice. So I read this last week. Uh, it's an amazing book. I think for anyone that's coming into any business, I think you can uh, you can apply it. Obviously, you talk a lot about. Uh, the businesses you worked at and the KPIs and stuff like that, but you could really apply that to any business plan on any business, I think.
1: Uh, th- and that, That's right, and that's what I try to say. So, I mean, while I might have a rental and machinery background, the principles apply no mm. matter what the business mm. is and what uh, whether it's in financial services, retail, the principles will always apply.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, so what I wanted to do was... I think there's some amazing points in here. I wanted to just talk about some of the points that I found really interesting, and we can just talk about them. Okay. Um. So, not to give away too much in the book, people, <laughs> but there's just definitely some stuff in that I think be really good content for us just to chat through. Okay. Go um. Ahead. So, so earlier in the book, you actually spoke about customers, uh, your staff, and then your suppliers. Yeah. And and you spoke about uh, without having existing customers that you're serving, it it doesn't allow you to truly lock into that sustainable growth method. Uh, and then you spoke about if you don't have the right staff that are supporting the business they're not going to be able to serve those customers to have that that, that growth and if you don't have the right supplies and relationships you can't actually supply your like, so it's a bit of a a triangle.
1: It and, is and I think it's at the heart of um, of any successful business is the relationship you have with those three groups so and you hear it a lot people say oh you know our staff's the most important thing to us and we're staff focused but it's, it's digging into that and making sure that that's actually a reality because without your people, you're not going to survive. Um, and it's not just about whether they enjoy coming to work. It's about have they got the right tools? Have they got everything they need to be the best they can be? Have they got a career path? Um, have they got a voice? And I think that's a really important aspect. That um, And we, you know, in my previous roles, you know, we took the time. We surveyed our staff. We wanted to know what they liked about us, what they didn't like about us. Um, we found out more from them than we probably could from any other way of understanding how successful our business was at that moment in time. And the same applied also with our customers. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, our customers, um, you just, well, you can't take your customers for granted. That's, I suppose, the bottom line. Uh, and again, it's it, how often do we realistically speak to them? And I don't mean, the sorts of things that go out today where you buy something and five minutes later you get a text message with a survey, rate us one to 10, how did mm-hmm. we do? I'm talking about actually sitting down with your customers and having those conversations about well, what are we doing well? Where do we need to improve? How can we serve you better? Um, you know, how do you see our business and your business in the future? And when, when, when I did it at JLG, it was um, a really big wake up call because we were already the, uh, the market leader in terms of market share but we were not a well-liked market leader um, and we had a lot of areas we needed to improve on, which we can talk about, I suppose, in more detail. But And the third group, yeah, which is often forgotten is that those business partnerships that help you succeed. So whether you call them your suppliers or your business partners, but having the right relationships with them is also an important aspect in succeeding with your customers because um, Ultimately, you're going to be relying on them to deliver some level of service for you to be successful with your customers. So, building that relationship and building that partnership uh, is really important aspect. And again, we took the time to ask our suppliers, "What can we do better? What, you know, how do you see our relationship?" And um, the information was was priceless. Yeah, no, definitely. So, so the other
0: part after that was the obligation as a, as a leader within a business. So. Uh, knowing that you need to focus on growth mitigating risk and protecting your staff yeah which i think is a really good one as well protecting your staff so could you talk about some of those points
1: yeah so um again it you know, I might have been the leader of those businesses, but I was probably the least important person in those companies, and that is, that's is—that's just a fact. Because I wasn't the one that opened the gates in the morning and made sure the lights were switched on, and I wasn't the one that was ensuring the next sale and the next, So, but my role was to empower my people so that they could do their jobs to the best of their abilities, and that they could succeed beyond the role mm-hmm. they were doing and for the long term. And that's the obligation that I see as a leader, um, and the most important one is, is to build a good team around you, but then let them do their job. Um, and it was, uh, when we put in a new software system in, it was actually, um, and you know Jason, obviously, Jason Legier, he and I had a great conversation one day, and he said, and I believe this of management, but he said of the system, that the system um, should let people do their job, and then you just manage by exception. And I, you know, I always thought that was really great way of putting it and I I wanted my people to be able to do their job to the best of their ability with the least amount of roadblocks and then if things went wrong you manage those scenarios rather than mandating behavior and and expecting a certain result.
0: Mm. And then when things are going well you actually, you quoted uh, Babe Ruth in your, in your book. Yes. So, so success can be the greatest risk to a business doing well. And Babe Ruth said, yesterday's home runs don't win tomorrow's games. Yeah. So yeah. do you want to talk
1: about that a little bit? Yeah, okay. So again, um, uh, because you're market leader today, that doesn't guarantee that you'll be market leader tomorrow. And let's look at what's happened. Um, and I talk about this a lot in the book. If you look at even... The last five or ten years, the, ch- the changes in technology and the changes in the world we live in, whether it's through COVID or whether it's, um, uh, yeah, sorry, new forms of software or mobile phones or whatever it might be, it changes business behaviour. Now, when I was back in the Crown days, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't even have computer. We had green screens. We didn't have email or internet and so on. And it was funny, when it first came out, the company had a policy that only senior managers were allowed to have internet and email, um, which, again, and they saw it because it was such a huge cost. But, you know, we would look at it now and say, well, you couldn't operate without that. Mm. So, again, what is tomorrow going to bring? And, and, and sitting on today's performance and thinking, yeah, aren't we doing well, isn't going to guarantee that as things change, you're going to be successful in the future. Yeah,
0: I think I, I read that in the book around, I think your example was the telephone and mobile phones. Yeah. Like if someone, if you told your sales rep that he couldn't have a phone today, you'd think you're insane as a yeah. as a business. Yeah. And whatever that next technology is going to be, that is like in 10 years, people think it'd be crazy, you're not going to have it. Yeah. I think it's making sure that those businesses are aware and taking those little investment risks to make sure, and then, and obviously planning, making sure is it worth the risk? Yes,
1: and I think that's the key, is that it's to to be constantly looking at at yourselves. And so, yes, you might be successful today, and that's great, and there's a lot of reasons you've built a successful business, but if you're not planning for the future, then you're actually going backwards. Um, And today's success will end up being very short-lived. So it's always looking to, you know, are we doing things the way we should? And I follow some basic rules. Where are we now? Where do we want to be? How are we going to get there? If you've always got those three questions in your mind, then you're thinking strategically. Uh, And with everything that's changed so much in our world that we live in, those three questions are are even more pertinent. Mm. Um, Because even industries that were successful um, two years ago, some of those don't even exist anymore because COVID or world events have have destroyed certain industries. So, um, uh, you know, those challenges never stop. So you've always got to be, always got to be thinking for the future. And you
0: spoke about the survey. So a couple of points here um, that I really liked was that it doesn't matter what you think, like what the customer actually perceives is reality. Yes. Like it doesn't yeah. matter if you think that you're the best company in the world. If your customers believe you have bad service or response times or whatever it is, yeah. Then that and that's the common trend amongst the survey results, then that is,
1: the, the reality. Exactly right. And that was, um, again, using the JLG example, that was the greatest shock to, when I presented the results to my management team, because they had this specific, well, we're number one. We're clearly the best. And then it was like, well, guess what? This is what how we're seen. And um, and some of it was very harsh. I mean, some of our customers didn't hold back in the language they used, let alone the um, the sentiment behind it. But, uh, you know, so it can be a, it can be a real shock to the system, but ultimately... If they perceive you in a certain way, that is going to be your reality at some stage. It mightn't be today when you're doing well, but it will be in the future because those people won't stay your customers forever Mm. if they perceive you in that light. And
0: on top of that as well, like when a staff member reads these results, it's important that they don't take it personal.
1: Yes, yeah, and we had that, yeah, we, yeah, and again, when we did the survey uh, in that example, uh, some of the customers named names, um, which I, when I presented the results, I took those out, but I think the smarter people in the room sort of knew that, okay, well, that's a very pointed remark, uh, and I urged the team, we can't take this personally. This is a perception of the business, and this, if we fix it as a business, those perceptions can still be changed mm. and and turned around to be a, a positive for the future
0: yeah and then talking about planning for the future as well if you're not looking at it like you might miss that opportunity that does come up and then when you when it does come around like you're basically reacting for that opportunity yeah and, and it's too late then because you're you're basically trying to make a decision on the fly rather than giving yourself a year or six months or two years to plan
1: yeah and i think that that's a really important part of um for companies that are that, that don't see the value in strategic planning or, or don't think they need to be strategic planning, it's what are you missing out on? Because if, what, it, if you're not doing it, you can bet your bottom dollar your competition probably is. So someone will be looking at a way to do something better than you are now and build what, what I talk about as the competitive advantage, which mm. is... And a competitive advantage is what you do or don't do that your opposition can't do. So, you know, I often use the Coca-Cola example of um, their competitive advantage. This is way back when, even before my time, but they set their competitive advantage of making sure no matter where you were in the world, you could buy a Coke. And so you could go to the pyramids and there'd be a vending machine. You could go mm. anywhere and be able to buy a Coca-Cola and it became a massive competitive advantage for them, but they built a plan then to achieve it. Mm. So that became their vision and then they, their plan was right how do we do it well you know and they built sales teams and, and um, uh, logistic um, support to make sure that happened uh, and i think that's you know if you again in, this, in that example if you're pepsi cola they're direct opposition and you're not planning well what's our vision and what's our future then you can get left behind and by the time you react it's too late you, yeah. you know it can take you years to catch up and I read in the,
0: in the book as well, when you are talking about competitive advantage, when you're putting a plan together, don't – like some businesses think about putting a plan together just for the sake of putting the plan together, yeah. not to actually action the plan.
1: Yeah, and I've had – yeah, not every strategic plan that I've been involved in has been successful. Um, and I, especially in my consulting, um, the years I've been doing the consulting work, I've had a couple of customers that uh, of mine that have – got me in, spent all the money and all the time to build the strategic plan and then to put it in a drawer because they only want to pull it out if they're in an environment where they're trying to sell themselves uh, either to a bank or to a potential customer. So oh, here's our strategic plan, this is our future. They actually had no intent of doing it, of following the steps. And in the two instances that it, where it's happened to me in recent years, both those companies have really struggled since, um, and I had one, and I think I mentioned it in the book, I can't remember, but I had one that actually came back to me and said, I made a horrible mistake, we need to get onto this. Mm. Um, because they, they got to the point where they thought, well, is it too late? Have we, have we missed the boat? Because we didn't do it for the right reasons.
0: And when you talk about competitive advantage as well, I think it's really important to highlight that discounting isn't a competitive advantage.
1: No, it, look, and it could be in a, in a, in a moment in time, but it's not sustainable. And I think that's what I would always suggest to people is you've gotta find something that's different, something that you can do that others can't do. Um, So with with us, uh, if I can use the JLG example, um, we were already the most expensive. Yes, we could have discounted um, to try and bring our price down and win more business, but that wasn't gonna change the perception of the customers either. So we took it upon ourselves, what can we do to make us so that we had something that no one else could do and it was we built our aftermarket Mm. so we built a service business and a parts business that that became the the market standard I suppose Uh, and that was on the back of that and being able to give the customers better service um, ensure their machines were up and going um, meet all of their demands in those sorts of areas uh, it actually in itself took care the sales grew sort of organically from Mm. that Um, but it gave us such a head start because by the time the competition said, "Well, we're going to build the service networks," we already had a two-year head start on them, uh, and we built our reputation. Yeah, yeah. and and focus. I think uh,
0: I'm am very passionate about focus, and uh, especially time management. Yeah, I feel like it, it, it's impossible to claw back any time that you have throughout the day. Like if you if you waste your time, you can't actually get. It's like utilization with machines. You can't get that utilization back. The rental rate. Yeah, and in the book you spoke about. Uh, making sure that you put the right focus on the right areas and using your time wisely. I think a lot of people, they're trying to attack too many things at once. Yep. or they don't really know what the problems are. They're just doing something because someone said, it would be nice to be able to do this rather than actually understanding how do we make a difference in the bottom line or whatever the process is gonna yeah, be. Yeah,
1: and I think that's an important part of the planning process too. So you know, when we had the feedback from our, our three groups, our, um, our customers, our staff and our suppliers, We had an idea then of, okay, well, these are the areas that we need to address. But we also spent time working out, well, what are the opportunities that are in front of us that we want to take advantage of? And once we had all of this different information, I don't want to bore everybody with every aspect of it, um, but then we got to the point where, okay, how do we focus in the best areas? So that's when we built our strategic initiatives, and we had five. um, And then from that, we had a series of objectives and actions and then we allocated resources to it. Because again, as the lead, just because you're the leader doesn't mean you're the best person to be doing a lot of this work, mm. uh, nor should you be taking it all on. Um, but I had such a great team around me that I had utmost faith in, well, I could hand this stuff out. They were as, because they'd helped build the plan, uh, and every staff member in our business had helped build that plan, so everybody was was vested in the outcome and it was easy then to ensure the focus in the right areas was with the right people. Uh, but even as we move forward, if, if we had built a, um, a, an objective and an action, and as we investigated it further, it became irrelevant or it wasn't, it wasn't what we thought it was gonna be, then we were able to, to mitigate and adjust. Mm. Uh, and that's the other part of planning, is it has to be, um, you have to have the ability to be um, agile and change direction if things change for you. And that yeah. was one of the things we built into our planning.
0: Yeah, I actually have that as a note in here. So oh, okay. <laughs> um, that's quite interesting, That's a really good point because I feel like a lot of senior leaders, when they put a plan together, they're very stubborn about yeah. changing their mind. And sometimes you have to change your mind. You do. Because if you don't change your mind and you're going towards a train wreck and yeah. you're doing it just because you're stubborn, yeah. well then yeah.
1: Yeah, and again, look at, look at Look at the companies that build a, you know, probably a really good strategic plan in 2019 and then COVID hits. Do you persevere with that plan? Or do you say, well, we just, let's do a review and see what the impact of COVID is gonna have on our business, excuse me. You're not gonna be able to know every single outcome, but um, being able to at least sit and um, have another look at your plan, see if it's still relevant and uh, whether it's still achievable because that's the other part of planning is is to always constantly assess and say is it achievable if you're going to um, uh, to do something it has to be what's a good example let's say we're going to grow sales by hundred million dollars well you can instantly sit back and go well hang on how you know like we've got these things but i add that up the accountants add it up whoever adds it up it comes to 10 million dollars so it's not yeah. achievable okay so we've got that wrong in our plan Um, And so then you go back and and have another look at it and and make sure you're going down the right path. And you actually mentioned
0: this earlier on the podcast that a budget is
1: not a plan. Yeah, yeah. And again, in my early days, as I was moving up through the ranks at Crown, so much of the year was spent on the budget and then the branches and divisions were given the budget and was going to make it happen. Um, But there was no, well, how are we going to do it? Mm. Um, How do you want us to do it? And I remember one... In one particular company, um, the mandate was they decided they were going to have a plan, but it was a one sentence plan. They wanted X, a certain percentage of market share by the end of the year. The business achieved it, but nearly went broke doing it because the salesmen were basically giving the machines away to hit that market share number. <clears throat> so again, I think there's there's different levels of of um, setting a vision and a plan, and but a budget is should be the outcome of your plan. So when we when I've built plans with the teams I've worked with, we've built the plan, then we've mapped out the financial model to see what that will do to our numbers. And then, it's again, it's part of understanding whether it's realistic and if it's achievable. Um, but that was that's a more realistic way to build a budget than to, than to say, well, the budget is the plan, go and make it happen.
0: And then the other part of it is, when there is a plan in place, and then there's a cost associated with the plan to implement more staff or invest in technology or whatever it yep. is. Sometimes it's not super clear on how to calculate the ROI. And, and you spoke in the book about, it might take like a while for you actually to see the flow on effects yes. of what the benefits are going to be. Because you can't just put a number on there and say, oh, we're going to increase the, the jobs per day yep. by two or something. Like there might be, oh, we've actually reduced paperwork on the service hand or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. And I think some business leaders... They just look at the cost straight away and they go, How's that gonna give the ROI? Well, we know it's gonna it might be the flow and effect of the customers. Yes. The customer SAP might increase. And yes. then that turns into them spending more money per year, like whatever it might be. Yeah. There. Yeah.
1: And again, I think that's, you know, the, the when you're when you are creating your plan and you're looking for the ROI, again, it's like with anything, it's think outside of a, of a set of financials. Um, and look at so if a customers if the customer has said that their frustration is that they have to wait three days when they have a breakdown for someone to come out and fix the machine, and the impact that has on their business. So if if and we did we put in a, a completely new software system through Baseplan that revolutionised the way we did it, and we were able to then guarantee um, two hour response time. So while there was the, the massive cost of putting in a whole new software system. You think, well, where's that return going to be? The return came from the fact that we were able to meet those customers' demands. They then went, wow, that's the company I want to deal with. And all of a sudden, their 50-50 spend between us and a competitor became, let's say, an 80-20 spend to us. Mm. But you wouldn't see that in the first three or four months you see that over a period of time
0: yeah. yeah and i remember when uh i worked with you a few times when you, i think you were at jog and adapt lift you, you really liked the dashboards that you put together Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of those kpis that you got were really focused on putting mobility in the field for service techs i think that was a really important yeah it was, to that.
1: it was one of our driving forces because so much of the feedback we got was around um, our so the equipment was great. Everybody loved our equipment, but it was everything behind it that they didn't like. Uh, and so, that was such a big part of the focus was to give um, the system or get the right system to be able to improve that. And when when I was first at JLG, our, our service techs were doing the best they could, but they were averaging one and a half jobs a day. No, sorry, it was one point one jobs per day. Um, because, you know, they would have to ring in the office, the office would ring them back, they'd say, well, where are you? Oh, I'm over here, oh, I need you to go over there, across the other side of town and so on. It was just a nightmare. When we put the right system in with GPS tracking and, and Google Maps and all of those sorts of things, uh, and then gave the technicians um, tablets and ability to scan their parts and so on, um, we went from 1.1 jobs to 3.8 jobs per day. So... You know, again, if you want to look at what, not only did it massively increase customer satisfaction, but our cost base of those staff hadn't changed, but they were now more than three times more productive. Mm. So the impact on our bottom line was staggering. Yeah. Um, and just on that too, our, I mean, our ROI, we had committed an ROI of uh, three years back to, to head office on putting in this system. We were able to achieve it in, in nine months. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, but it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't planned it.
0: Mm. So so I read in your book as well that you said, uh, two of the most powerful tools for a leader is communication and engagement.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and, I, uh, it, I'm, and I'm passionate about both. And, so the communi- and communication has to be a two-way thing too. So um, when we were going through the business planning process, we told the business we wanted to go down this. We did the staff surveys. When we got the information back, we then went back to the staff and said, "We've this is what we're hearing and this is how we want to approach it. And we're gonna be building a plan for the future and we want you to be part of that plan. Uh, and so it was that constant communication with the business that was, again, critical to getting people to um, support what we wanted to achieve, but to also um, embrace it and feel part of it, because we wanted everybody to feel part of um, the business that uh, that we were going to, or the new business that we were going to be able to build. Um, so the communication was key, and that never stops, even if you're not in a planning phase. Um, keeping people up to date. We, you know, we would hold monthly uh, branch meetings. Every branch would have their own. And my instructions to to the managers was, you know. Tell the people how we're traveling. Give them an overview. You know, they don't want to go through the P and L in detail, but give them an overview. Let them know if we're doing well, if we're not doing well, and and if we're not doing well, what are we going to do about it? Um, because it's their business too, and and it's, you just can't ever lose sight of that. And mm. so, communication to me is is key.
0: Yeah. And so, following on from the the survey and the plan, once you do put the surveys out there and you get the responses and you you put together a plan, it's also not about just a once off on action in the plan, it's it's a ongoing, yeah, cycle that you're going on and on. Because one of the big risks is if you do all these surveys and you tell customers that you're going to make these changes and you don't do anything, yeah, or you do half a job or you or whatever it is, yeah, then it might even be worse than not doing yeah. the surveys, yeah. No, and
1: that's <laughs> and then that's true. So, if you, if you, you know, and I would this is my advice to anybody considering going down this path if you're going to go down, you've got to follow it through because if you're As soon as you sit in front of your customers and ask them the questions about how you're perceived or you do it with your staff, there is always an expectation instantly that, well, something's going to change. So you have to follow it through. And then once you've built your plan and you've started to make change, we were communicating even because the plan took, um, it doesn't get rolled out in a couple of weeks and putting a new software system in took... 15 to 18 months, all of those things but we were communicating constantly about the little wins we were having, the little changes we were making um, to ensure that our customers, our staff, whoever was involved could see the path and mm. could follow us through to the end. But once you once you start strategic planning or business planning, whatever you want to call it, it should be part of you every, every day f- mm. for the rest of that business as long as it as long as that business succeeds. Because again, even if the plan gets rolled out and it's a massive success like it was for us, as soon as you sit back on that, then you're back to Babe Ruth. You know, the home runs don't yeah. don't count tomorrow, so start again. You've got to keep moving forward. And we went we went through the process every 12 months, and it didn't mean we changed it. We, I think we had two or three years where it was basically just, yep, we're still on the right path. That's all we had to verify, and we had a few tweaks. Um, but then it would get to a point where things did change, and right now we've got a we've got a whole new set of initiatives we have to focus
0: on. And and I think also when you do put together a big plan like this, and you want to make a change, you can't just tell someone, "Oh, Gary." Also, you're doing your day job plus you're initiating this plan. Like you got yeah. to resource the project, if you want to call it a project, yep.
1: properly. Yeah, and and it's interesting though because because we communicated. We went through the staff surveys and because of our communication plan that was was part of it all, we had, I couldn't, I was blown away by by the level of volunteering we had from staff who said, I will take on extra duties if it means I'm gonna get a better outcome at the end. So we did have a lot of that, but at the same time, you know, we made sure we had the experts around us um, to manage projects because I'm not an. I mean, I was the leader. I'm not an expert in this or an expert in that. So I made sure I had those experts at my at my fingertips um, to make sure again we had the best best chance of success. Mm. And and so, in terms of
0: monitoring success, it's important to have those like uh, leading up. Uh, consistent meetings and then post meetings. Like you need to constantly be reviewing where you're going and, yeah, and, and, and how and you're it,
1: going. It is important. So it, it's all well and good to build the plan, and, but it's the rolling out of the plan that's key. And And as you're rolling out, we I mean, how you structure it depends on the size of your business. But for our business, we had um, weekly staff meetings for my immediate team, of which the business plan was always on the agenda. We had formal reviews once a month. I had reviews with suppliers um, based on the schedules of how long it was going to take to roll out the projects. Uh, and then again, all of those, all of that was communicated back to the business as we mm. did it. Um, but it's that, again, it, the plan can change and may change as circumstances do. The way to get ahead of that is to have a review process locked in so that you can get on top of things if they change quickly uh, without losing momentum in rolling out the overall plan. Um, but it is, if you if you roll out a plan and you're not reviewing it as you go, then how do you really know whether you're successful? Mm. And if, if something does go awry and it's two years down the track, it's too late. So yeah. you you know you get on top of it before it becomes a problem.
0: Yeah, what's that saying? Like you can't measure something if you don't actually have a plan in place. Like Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, look, I I um I can't imagine anybody running a business nowadays without a plan. Um I mean, they do, but I couldn't imagine it moving forward. Um and it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's a methodology. You know, and again, it starts with the three basic questions. Where are we today? Where do we want to be? And the plan is how we're going to get there. Mm. Then you ask, is it achievable? And how do we monitor success? That's it. You get that method down, you can build a plan sitting sitting in, in your boardroom, but make sure you get your staff involved. And so what happens when you're putting together a plan
0: and either a senior leader or some staff aren't on board?
1: Yeah, that, look, that is challenging, but we, we found... Um, that the survey results themselves at for us anyway pretty much showed that up at the beginning so before we'd even got to the everyone sitting in a room building the plan itself um, I in fact I had one particular manager who I respect immensely for this who came to me and said Andrew I think what you're doing is amazing he said but I'm just not up for it he said you know I just I just don't want to go through that and so he left the business uh, the other you know, and I respected that more than if he tried to bumble through half-heartedly. Um, but there was a lot of other scenarios where um, people's roles changed as the plan evolved um, because it was almost it was almost a check on where their passion was, also a check on their skill set. And I always believe you have got to have right people in the right roles. And so we actually end up moving some people around to their betterment and to the betterment of the business because they actually weren't in the right roles to start with. Uh, and it came out of the, the planning process. Mm. Um, and through those changes, it was amazing how good the engagement was. We had very few instances where people said, no, it's not for me. Mm. Um, but if it wasn't, well, that was their choice because we weren't gonna change. Yeah, definitely. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> It, what i, do, I hope it, what it sounds like it's actually a lot of fun it you know i know business is meant to be about making money and so on but the success we had with the planning but the fun and the the way it brought the company together and we had uh, 350 400 staff and it brought the business together with a common purpose everybody rowing in the same direction everybody excited about the outcomes um, you know it was it was one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done and now I couldn't imagine not doing it.
0: And so when, let's say you're a business leader and you wanna present your idea or your, your plan upwards and you get approval, like, yeah, what advice would you give to those people? Yeah, okay, so that was,
1: because uh, so when we built the plan at JLG, our approval process had to be in America, so um, I was going over there for meetings anyway, so I tucked it under my arm and off I went. Um, and it was it was an interesting story because it was just around the time the GFC, the global financial crisis hit, and an email came out, all CapEx spending has stopped, and there's me with my saying, but I want the new system, <laughs> and I want new service vans, and I want more people and new facilities. Um, but anyway, I, I was able to present it initially to the president of the company, um, uh, and I hit the top lines, of, and, and I focused on um, this is what I need, but this is what I'm gonna give you in return and this is how how I'm going to be able to do it, and it's all in the plan. I only had about maybe 20 minutes with him, so it was never going to be finalised. But, I mean, he's a you know, great man in my eyes and always will be one of my great mentors. But he he went and read it, and I remember getting... i no sooner landed back in Australia, I got a phone call, we're on our way. And he and a few of the senior execs came over, and they wanted to see it for themselves. Uh, they wanted to touch and feel and so on, and and... In the, in the middle of the biggest financial crisis that they'd ever been through, we got the rubber stamp to proceed. So, again, I think my advice would be if you've got to take it up, it's all about this. Again, it's almost explained. This is where we are. This is where we want to be. And this is how we're going to get there. And this is what it's going to do for you. Um, so if it's if it's financiers, if it's um, business partners or whatever, I think that's the way to approach it. It's, mm. it's all about... Um, Getting from point A to point B, and this is what you're going to get at the end of it.
0: So, so not everyone has the confidence to do that, and there's probably a lot of <laughs> lot of stress and anxiety yeah. when you're doing that. So, yeah. h- how would you, how do you manage that stress that sort of comes along with that?
1: Uh, well, for me at the time, it was gym. <laughs> I used to hit the gym every <laughs> night. But no, but 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 within work, it was the stress was there. But I had such a good team of people that I worked with, um, and you know the people that I put into the roles, but but i had so much faith in them and and they had faith in me and we worked so well together that we could find those lighthearted moments or we could find common ground where there didn't seem to be any uh, and we were able to work through it so um, the stress building the plan wasn't stressful there was that was actually you know really good getting it approved was stressful because we you know we surveyed our staff and our customers and they're expecting change mm. um, so that was a bit stressful the rolling out had stressful moments, but again, I had the right people. I had you know I mean I've been so blessed in my career to work with amazing people um, that deserve way more credit than than I do. and they they just took it on board, it became their purpose. and then again, our suppliers, you know our software suppliers at the time, and people who supplied, supplied the service vans. every aspect, we just had mm. the best partners. Um, and they they took on a lot of the stress and they helped us through.
0: So so I think a lot of small businesses they the, the owners try and micromanage and 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 build the success themselves across all departments. Yeah. It it sounds like to really action the plan you need to empower people within those departments to to lead.
1: I'm a firm believer that if you if you build if you personally build the plan without your team, you know, even a small team, without your three or four staff, whatever it might be, twenty staff, if they're not part of it, they're not going to own it. They're not going to drive it with the passion that you have for it, um, and they mightn't even agree with it. So, where's the where's the gain there? So, to me, it has to be about. It always has to be about get them all involved. Now, and when I say get everyone involved, we had everybody in our business knew about the plan, but not everybody had a role in the you know in the activities of the plan. But they knew about it they'd had their say um, they were communicated with all the time and so they it was their plan too and we that was our message all the time this is our plan this is mm. the uh, and I think it, you know a small business is just as important to have that sort of philosophy if you try and force behavior it rarely works if you empower your people and you bring them into the process and it's their plan heading in their direction uh, then you've got a lot more chance of success mm. no, I like that Alright let's learn a little bit more about you outside the book okay. so so what is
0: something that your younger self would never believe
1: uh, I don't think I ever would have believed I'd write a book um, you know I'd, I've always wanted to but never thought I would and um, and I was fortunate enough to, to speak with a publisher who really liked the concept um, and you know now one book's going to turn into well they're saying three but I I might stop at two but um, I think yeah, my younger self would have just laughed at that, um, at, at that ever happening. And even being, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't have a, a university degree or any of those things. That, you know, I, I started off in as a sales rep and uh, worked my way up and. Um, I think my younger self, if they saw some of the great roles and, uh, that I've had over the years and the opportunities that have given me to travel around the world, all those sorts of things, mm. my younger self would have gone, wow, <laughs> who would have thought someone like you could have achieved that. Uh, and what would you say to yourself then? Um, well, the one thing I've learned is, I, I suppose over those years is that if you work hard and you're passionate about what you do, you can be successful. And I've seen, you know, I've been, again, and um, I don't know if, but I'd like to mention Cliff and Melissa Chadwick, um, and I know you've spoken to them, but Melissa was a girl that that worked at Crown and um, she'd never even worked in an office and, you know, sat down as a rental coordinator and um, was totally overwhelmed on her first few days. But, you know, there's a girl now that just wanted to learn, had a thirst for knowledge, um, and built a customer base that were probably more loyal to her than they were to the company she worked for. Um, who's now, you know, with, with Cliff, built their own little empire um, just, you know, just on the back of, you know, of that belief that she could do it and the hard work that goes with that. And, uh, and, you know, and that's, you know, that's something I'm, uh, you know, they're great people, but it's just a great story mm, as well. Awesome. Um,
0: all right. Well, look, you did say the word success. So how do you define success?
1: Yeah, success for me is probably different to how most people see it. I, I felt that I've been successful because I've worked with people that have gone on to be even more successful. And I take a lot from that. I'm very proud of the relationships that I've built and the people that I've worked with. And to see them kick on and, and be in these senior roles and, um, and be in such a good space in their life and, and their work life and personal life, you know, I, I can look back, I'll always sit back now and say, yeah, I was successful, but that'll be the reason why.
0: Mm. And i you be probably referring to Bob Mules along the way, but Bob, Bob has been to, I think, like X amount of years in, in the, the at Higher Mental Industry, Industry Association yeah. for the trade show. Yeah. And this year you got COVID and it couldn't go, so it was devastating. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, people like that. Bob, Bob yeah. Mules is obviously an absolute legend. Oh,
1: yeah. Look, they, they, you know, especially that team, you know, and they, most of them have... So there was Bob, there was Rob Branch, there was Fiona Duncan, Scott Daly, all these people. They're all in senior, senior roles still, great people. Um, and, you know, I always felt that I was a better leader when I was working with them. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. No, Mark, I really appreciate it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you.